What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How can we live the truth of this out in our everyday lives? In this series, you will be challenged to not just claim Christianity, but to operate in the power of Christ's name. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Grab a Bible. We're going to be in Acts 16. I know last week there was a man up here who looked like me, but had the inability to grow the facial hair I have, and so I am back. And uh, he, he did Acts 15, and uh, David did an incredible job sharing about uh, how God works in our lives and amongst our relationships and how together we are better. And so here we are in Acts 16, and we're going to continue on, as we've done in this series of Acts, is how in the world did the Christian church become the head of culture? become the very thing that defined uh, modern civilization of its time and then even grow to where we see it today, where unfortunately we, as we've held the torch, have let it slip a little bit to the tail of culture. And I think one of the ways to get back to the head of culture is understand where we came from, which is why we are in the series, The Acts of the Apostles. And in 16 here today, we get to actually hear uh, a personal story from the author of Acts. Who is the author of Acts? Luke. That's right. Who said Luke just now? Go ahead, raise your hand. You all get extra crowns in heaven. That's right. Not just one crown, but two. So uh, I'll email Jesus about that later. Acts 16, verse 1 through 19. Uh, Luke is actually in this story. This isn't him just writing about what's happening. He is with Paul and Silas. Remember Paul and Barnabas parted ways in the last chapter. I think Dave talked about that. And uh, now he's with Silas and Luke is in on this journey. And they're going to meet someone very familiar here right off the bat. Verse 1, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived. We know Timothy. Whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke, Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So obviously he did what anybody does when you want to take a buddy with you on a journey. He circumcised him because the Jews who lived in that area all knew that his father was Greek. Now, if you didn't think Timothy was a total hardcore tough guy before, in order to be a minister of the gospel, Paul's like, look, you're going to have a church amongst a bunch of Jewish brothers. And I know this isn't required of you. You catch that? Remember, Paul knows from the Lord this is not required, that this is not part of the law, this is not part of being Christian. But because of the people you'll be ministering to, would you be willing? And God bless Timothy because he was. All right, verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Where does, what book do we get from the place of Galatia? Extra jewels. Good job. Um, oh, by the way, if you knew here, that's not true. That stuff about the, that just forget all of that. I'm joking. Um, where are these jewels this church is talking about? Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So for some reason, God is keeping them at this time from going to Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah and went down to Traus. Traus. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we... What's that say? We got ready. 
Now this is how we know, and this is what's so cool about this section of Acts, is Luke is there with him. He's not saying they got ready. He's saying we got ready. I was there. So, uh, had the vision. We got ready once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Trous, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, where we get the book to the... All right, look at this, extra mansions. And... uh, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there, and one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household believed, they were baptized. And so she invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, would you come and stay at my house? And she, this is important. This is very important. We'll talk about it in a second. She persuaded us. She persuaded us. Once when we were going to this place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling, and she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. Uh, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept up this She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became, get this, so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her, and when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So this is an incredible story. This is Luke not just giving an account of what's happened. Luke is actually there. And if we go back, yeah, the last verse there. Who who gets seized? Paul and Silas. Where was Luke? He's like, I'm out of here. Like all of a sudden he just sort of went over to this side. It was like, they did it. I just, I like how he's like, no, I wasn't part of the seizing. We actually find out later what happened and we'll talk about that next week. But what I want to talk about this week is something so incredibly crucial to our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of how we share the gospel with those we come in contact with. And that is point number one, the versatility of the gospel of Christ. The versatility of the gospel of Christ. And this is where, unfortunately, the church for many centuries has missed this idea that to preach Christ, to preach the good news, to share the good news with people is not one size fits all. It's not the same exact way to do it for every person in every situation. It's not all about bringing them to an understanding of reason and going into deep theological discussions. It's not all about worship music that gives you goosebumps and makes you feel good because we turn the air conditioning down during worship and then we turn it up during the message. Right? We want you to get goosebumps during worship and then feel the heat of God during the message. So it's 85 in here right now. Little church tricks. Didn't know about that one. Right? There is this understanding that somehow there is one way to present the gospel of Christ. There is one way. And if you don't figure it out in that one way, then you're going to go to hell. And unfortunately, the message of the church has been very similar to this for a long time. 
But what I want you to see here today is that God works in many ways because he cares about the individual that is being spoken to. And he recognizes that not all of us are in the same place, that not all of us have had the same experiences, and our God meets us where we're at. And that's the versatility of the gospel. So let's look at our first contestant here. Her name is Lydia. And in verse 13, we get to learn a little bit about her. It says, on the Sabbath, we went outside. So Paul, Silas, and Luke go outside the city gates on the Sabbath because what would happen is the God-fearing Gentiles, if you remember that from a few weeks ago, it means people who had come to study the Hebrew scriptures, but they were not of Jewish descent, uh, would often go to the Sabbath or... They would hold their own Bible studies with the Hebrew scriptures and begin to study them um, essentially like a home group or a Bible study. And so they had heard about this one and they go out to this place of prayer by the river. They turn the corner and they see, lo and behold, a gathering of women. Now, nowadays, this isn't a big deal. We're about to have a gathering of 350 or so women at the women's retreat. But back then, for these three missionary men to walk up to a place of prayer and to only see women. If you are a missionary who has been called to Macedonia to influence Macedonia, to change Macedonia and capture it for the name of Christ, you would not have started with women. Because at that time, women were seen by the civilized, modern-thinking Roman world and Asian world as second to even third-class citizens as people that were not culturally influential, socially influential. And so it would have behooved Paul, Silas, and Luke that if they were really looking for the most impact in Macedonia to move on to a more male-dominated Bible study. And we're going to get more into that here by the end. But what I want you to see is the beauty of how God's gospel comes to all people and how God is against, is against this idea of uh, male and female, one being greater than the other, but instead he calls us to be what? Co-laborers in this world, okay? Important to note as we move on. So they sit down, and as they sit down and begin to speak, one of those listening is a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. She's a dealer in purple cloth, and she is a worshiper of God. So there's a few things we learn about her right off the bat. One, she's a businesswoman. Right? She's not from Macedonia. Macedonia. She's actually from Thyatira, which means she's a jet setter. You guys ever been to the airport and you see that lady in like the pencil skirt and the blazer with the high heels and her hair's up in a bun and she's on the phone. She's got her little bag behind her and she's just like, she's doing business right there, right? She always sits in first class and she's all over the place and she's like a smart businesswoman. This is Lydia. She is powerful, she is smart, she deals in purple cloth. Now, what that means is purple was very difficult to make and so thus very expensive to make. And we know that purple meant royalty and so if you were wealthy or affluent in any way, you wore purple. You could afford purple, you would have gotten it from a woman like Lydia. So she owns essentially a small boutique similar to what we would call Gucci or Ralph Lauren or um, Apartment 9. Right, Van Heusen, what I'm wearing today. So very high-end clothes, very nice clothes, something that Target would sell, possibly a Massimo. And uh, I can relate to Lydia, I get it, right? She only deals with the finest linens. And so here she is, and she's at this prayer group. She's in Macedonia on business, and she loves the Lord. 
She's been studying these Hebrew scriptures. She's at a Bible study while on a business trip in Macedonia, and she's reading the scriptures, and she's amongst these other women, and they're trying to understand and learn about God. And here comes Paul, Silas, and Luke, and they sit down. Notice that? It says they sit down with them, which means it lets us know a few things. One, it's not a huge gathering. It's not like this. It's also not the uh, meeting room at the Marriott where they're, they're trying to pitch them. It's not a marketing event. It's not a sales event to, hey, come find eternal happiness and peace, right? Um, this is a Bible study. It's a small group. And Paul, Silas, and Luke sit down with them, and they don't preach at them. They actually begin to have a discussion, give and take. You catch that? This is what's going on. See, the Bible always is so much more fascinating when you get the picture of what's happening. And so amongst these people is this very well-to-do person who sells beautiful clothes to beautiful people at reasonable prices. <laughs> I made that last part up. I don't know if they're reasonable. <coughs> but that's what she does. She sells, she's very affluent. And she begins to hear about this Jesus. They begin to tie in the connections from Isaiah and Daniel and David and Joseph. They begin to take the prophecies from the minor prophets, Habakkuk, Nehemiah, and they begin to show her the beauty of how Christ came and fulfills all of it. Do you see what's happening? The Bible then goes on to tell us, uh, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, what gets lost in translation, I'm not usually a big Here's the Greek, here's the Greek. But what gets lost in translation here is the word respond. See, when we think of the word respond here, we think of maybe at the end of the service, I'll ask you to respond. You'll come forward. Maybe you'll talk to Jesus. Maybe you won't. Or you'll go to the back and pray with somebody. The word respond is much deeper. In the Greek, what is written is to be attracted to, is to be drawn to, is to almost become intoxicated by Often it would say in the Greek that you responded to the alcohol, which meant you were, or to the wine, which meant you were intoxicated by it. As she began to hear these words, her heart was so attracted to the beauty of Christ and who he was that she uh, immediately becomes baptized, right? Gives her life to the Lord, gives everything she has to the Lord and says, this is it, this is what I want. And here's the thing about those days, and what you'll see is a pretty uh, accurate parallel to where we're at today. The Greek culture would have had paganism or polytheism as its main religious views of worship. What that means is self is the most important. Polytheism is all the gods, Zeus and Hermes and all of them, right? The, the mythicism of the gods. And the thing with the problem with paganism is it's a very self-centered religion. It's a, it's a religion that says if you want something, you pray to the God you want it from. And then you have to appease that God. So make sure you don't make that God angry. Make sure you're on that God's good side. And if you're a good enough person, that God may give you what you want. So if you're selling across the seas, who's the God of the sea? Poseidon. You better make sure your Poseidon's on your good side, right? It's a very lonely, hopeless religion. But then they go and they find the Hebrew scriptures and they learn of Yahweh, this one God, the creator, and then they read books like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they see the whole of the law, and they realize the crushing weight of the law of someone who didn't grow up underneath it. And we actually know that it's a crushing weight to those who did grow up underneath the law. 
We know that because uh, Acts 15, the Gentiles, uh, well, the Gentiles have to obey the Mosaic law and be circumcised by all that. Remember when that was being said by the Jewish Christians and then Peter says in 15, uh, why do we try to test God by putting them to, by putting it on the necks of the Gentiles, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? No, we believe it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. So you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Paganism, which is pretty empty and self-fulfilling, uh, or this Hebrew scripture, which is this crushing weight of the law that you don't know how to fulfill. And this is where Lydia finds herself in this meeting, and in comes Paul to tell her about the gospel. Do you see why now the gospel is the good news? Do you see that? It gets lost sometimes where we're at now, but it's good news. When your choice for for meaning in life, when your choice for eternal happiness and salvation is either self-fulfillment, uh, judgment, and prophecy of yourself getting you there, or it's this law that is so heavy and crushing, no one can fulfill it, you realize that the gospel of Christ comes and it's a good news. Paul says to them essentially, let me tell you something. I want to tell you about this Jesus. He lived a perfect life according to the law that you've been studying. He's the only one who ever did it or ever could. Then he went to a cross and he died for you. Not just for you, but for me and for the sins of all men and women, past, present, and future. He earned the blessing from perfect obedience. And then he took the curse of disobedience among himself. And so here's what happens. When you believe in him, the curse for your disobedience falls upon him. And the blessing of his obedience comes upon you. That's the transaction. That's the good news. So she gives her life to Christ. Not only is she baptized, but she says, I want my home to be a ministry center. What's that mean? Church. I want to take my influence, my prominence, my money, and my home, I want to make it a place of worship. I want people to come from all over and to be able to hear about this Jesus, and I want to be able to facilitate that meeting. So here, if we look next to verse 16, I'm going to come back to Lydia here in a second. As they're going to one of these meetings in verse 16, the Bible tells us, once when we were going to this place of prayer, we were met by a female slave. Remember, this is Luke writing, right? Who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And there's actually a lot we know about this little girl. And I say little girl because it's not just a female slave. What that means in Greek is that it is a young girl, probably between 10 and 14. So you literally have a young girl who uh, is mentally ill and seen by her culture as mentally ill, sold into a slavery because she has this strange gift of being able to foretell the future. And in, and in the scripture, in the Greek, it actually doesn't just say that she could tell the future. It literally says she had the spirit of the python. You know what the spirit of the python is? Well, Luke's readers would have known what the spirit of the python was. There was the oracle Delphi. The oracle was a great fortune teller. And in her legend, uh, she not only was a fortune teller and could see the future, but she slayed this giant lizard slash dragon called the python, Right? And so anybody who had the same uh, gift, so to speak, was said to have had the spirit of the python, the ability to see into the future. And so here's this little girl, and uh, there was a, a group of people at the time, very small group, 
that could do this, where it was clear that they were tormented inside. They shrieked, they shouted, they would pull at their hair. But they could also speak things that would then come true. And so people would come to these men and they'd say, I hear you have the spirit of the python. And they would say, we do. For so much amount of money, we'll go ahead and let her speak to you. And they would pay and she would speak and what she would say would come true. You know, the word though, this girl is not just mentally disabled. This girl is not uh, just schizophrenic as we would label them today because she could actually speak and the prophecies would come true. The other thing that's really trippy, and this is why the word used in the Greek for her is, get this, ventriloquist. Ventriloquist. Because here this tiny 10, 11, 12-year-old girl would be speaking, and then all of a sudden, the voice of a grown man would start coming out of her mouth. Have you ever seen the movie Exorcist? It's, uh, it's sort of spot on. That's why I don't watch that movie. It's a little too close to reality. That is exactly what's going on. And so this idea of a ventriloquist is one that can cause someone, else, someone else's voice to cast from them. And we know and would look at that as demon possession. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, you're an educated man, we're in modern times, please tell me you're not actually saying that demon possession is a thing that's real. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, 100% I am. And I'll, I'll show you here in a minute why I am. So this girl not only is possessed by something that causes her to speak in voices that are not her own, but she is clearly uh, mentally disturbed and has a problem and is a slave to these masters, not just physically, but spiritually a slave to something that she has no control over. And she is sold by her family to these men. That's how she would have ended up with them. This family would have seen what was going on with her, been freaked out, not known how to take care of her, then realized, but she does say things that come true. Would have contacted these men, they would have paid the family a sum to have her, and then she would make money for these men by speaking. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. <laughs> and they are telling you the true way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Now here's the deal, nobody knew what Christianity was in Macedonia. Nobody knew what a Christian missionary was. Nobody understood what Paul, Luke, and Silas are doing there. But she knew. This, this troubled girl knew who they were. They hadn't even gone around really spreading it. They were spending most of their time with this group and with Lydia and with the church there. And this girl sees them and it says every time they're going to prayer, they're going to lunch, they're playing a game of badminton, right? She's standing there screaming at the top of her lungs. These are men of the most high God and they come with the truth of salvation. Now here's what's really, really fascinating. She says, in the Greek says, they come with the truth for salvation. See, that's a difference between they just come with a way for salvation. Lots of people had the way for salvation. Lots of us have reasons and ways we think we can be saved. But this girl says they come with the truth for salvation. And I want to tell you something here that I think uh, James points out when he says the devils believe and they tremble. And this is what I want to tell you is the devil knows more about God than you or I do. 
The devil has a more accurate theology about God than Piper or Zacharias or Martin Luther or John Calvin or even Paul. The devil has an intimate knowledge of who God is and he hates him. Catch that? He's not confused. He hasn't been swayed by time and modern thought and science. He knows exactly who God is, what God's up to. And when he and this girl sees truth and sees these men coming, there is a hatred for them because he understands the triune nature of God. He understands that Jesus is both divine and human and he has a better theology than any of us. And there's a man named Andrew Del Banco who a few years back wrote a book called The Death of Satan. He's a professor at Columbia. He's a secular um, teacher. He's not a believer, but he writes this. We as modern people have underestimated the power and complexity of evil. Our theories of the simplicity, manageability, and controllability of evil have left us completely unprepared for its reality. See, we can't just account for evil with psychology and sociology and the sciences. You can't just say, well, he's that way because his parents were this way, or she's that way because of events that have happened in her life, and that's why she does those things, or they do those things, or that religion does those things. It's social. It's, it's science. It's, we, we've got it figured out. See, when you deny that there is an evil out there and there is an author of that evil, there is one who leads it and perpetrates it, then you deny the very existence, get this, you deny the very existence of evil itself. And there's that old adage that says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled on the world is convincing it that he doesn't exist. Because if we believe that we can handle this problem of evil with more government programs, with more education, with science, with a pill, if we believe that that is how we will handle evil, then he is doing exactly what he needs to do. It's just get us to believe that we've got this problem of evil handled. It's a simple thing, really. It's just science. It's just psychology. And the truth is you are controlled by what you love the most, by what's most important to you. Me and Pastor Josh were having this conversation this week. We were saying, if you live for people's approval, then you're controlled by the people that approve, that you want their approval and love from. If you live for power, then you're controlled by power and what you have to do to keep it. If you live for your career, then you're controlled by your career. And here's one that's really touchy for Christian people. If you live to please your children and love your children, then you're controlled by your children. I'm not telling you not to love your children. I'm not telling you to, not to sacrifice for them. But if they are the most important thing to you, what you love the most, then you are, have your priorities out of line and you are controlled by them. And that's a shame because even in the church, we see that so rampant. As we don't put our relationship with God first, we put our love for our children ahead of them. And we destroy their relationships. And so here she comes, shrieking and screaming. These are the ones who will tell you the true way of salvation. And so here's this question I have to pose to you. Is she attracted to them or appalled by them? What do you think? Appalled? Some say attracted. I'll give you this illustration, and hopefully this helps you understand this scripture. You ever seen Lord of the Rings, Gollum? She is essentially Gollum. Her, 
her spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And so she sees in these men a truth. She sees in them a grace and a mercy of the love of Jesus Christ, and she cries out for it that these are men of God who bring the true way of salvation. And yet, just like Gollum, because that demon resides in her, she is appalled by them and scared to death of them. It's how she is accurately able to determine who is there. She hates the light, but she loves the light. She hates the truth, but she loves the truth. She yearns for them, and she's mad at them. She's not just an inner slave, but she's an actual slave, sold by her parents. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days, so she was running around shrieking. And then Paul finally became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, do you see that? If you don't love the honesty of scripture, then uh, I can't help you. You see, in hero hero worship or hero literature, if you study the mythology, we don't ever see our main uh, protagonist do something like that. You see, if the Bible was truly trying to create legends out of Paul and these apostles, it would say something like, Paul turned to her and in his deep compassion for her broken state, held her in his arms and released her of this demon. (laughs) Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't you just be like, yeah, Paul. But I really relate to Paul here because our neighbor's dog was barking last night for all of three to five minutes. And I was ready to go out and in the name of Jesus cast out whatever was going on in that thing. Not out of compassion, but I was annoyed. And so here's Paul and they're trying to like witness and love people and share the gospel. And this little girl is just screaming at them. Remember, it's not like angelic. Hear her God's most high, right? It's not something beautiful that's following them around. And Paul finally is like, ah. Oh. He turns around and he says, get out. You see, when he comes to Lydia, he comes to her, he sits down with her, and on an intellectual, rational, theological basis, shows her Jesus Christ. And she accepts And there in Macedonia is the minister of the first and largest church for Christ. And when he meets this girl, he comes and he doesn't sit down and theologically begin to talk to her. He doesn't theologically begin to talk to her masters and try to get them to release her at change. In the name of Jesus, he shows her an encounter of the power of the Most High God. Do you see the difference? One needed a theological debate The other needed to sense and experience the power of God. (laughs) And so it is with you and I. The complexity of the scripture is not something that we have one size fits all. It's not a class you can take that says, this is how I witness. Instead, rather, you go daily before the Lord and say, what do you have for me today? Who will you bring across my path today? And how will I show them you today? This is operating in the power of God and not under your own knowledge and strength. So righteous results, close with these. First, notice the importance of women in the Christian movement. Can I get an amen, ladies? Notice the importance of women. You know, Paul gets a really bad rap in Christianity especially from the world, that he does not like women, that he thinks less of women, 
They like to take all sorts of scriptures out of context and say, look, women can't speak here, and then they have to submit to their husbands here. That's the worst one. And then it looks at women and says, oh, Paul must hate women. Right? It couldn't be further than from the truth. Think about it. If, if you're the enemy and you're wanting to tear down Paul, the leading apostle and evangelist of the gospel, Let's just show future cultures that he hated women, subdued women, and was part of the problem of the culture at that time. (laughs) Instead, he goes to Macedonia, sees a group of women, doesn't walk away, doesn't just give them five minutes and then move on, but begins to spend time with them, uplift them, share with them, teach them. And what we know about Paul, not only is Lydia the first minister of that church in Macedonia, that entire area, but later Paul talks about Yodoya and Syntyche, and other female names and women who he says, and I quote, are my fellow ministers of the gospel. Notice the importance of women in the Christian movement. I can tell you what, in 2017, it is no different. How many men are here, and you don't have to raise your hands so as to spare the guilty, are here men because your wives came first, spoke into your life, And now you come and you love the Lord because of her strength, right? See, nothing's changed. God still uses our wives. God still uses our wives every single day to tear us out of ourselves and our own mess. And God used the women of the time, the ones who the culture said were less than, to be the leaders and revolutionaries of the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. Notice how crucial it is, the second point, to open your home for ministry. Right? She opens her home to the rest of history, and for the first 300 years of Christianity, there were no buildings, there were no building campaigns or building funds. People just opened their home. And in today's culture, we don't even answer the door when the bell rings, right? We just hop on our phone, we check out the app, we make sure it's a person we wish to even get up for. And now we could just press a button and we unlock the door for them, or like, leave it at the front. We're so scared of actually being kind to people. And then to let them into our house is a whole nother thing. Like, praise God, I am so grateful for all of the small groups we have and for all of those of you who let people into their house because it stinks sometimes. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. Our house smells of cinnamon. And we're afraid you're going to come in and you smell of potatoes. It's true. I don't know if you've smelled people, but they smell of potatoes generally. And we have worked hard to get our house to smell of spices and Febreze and things that are nice. And when I let you in, it's potatoes. The bathroom is much worse. You don't like people in your home, your space. But what Paul's saying and what we see all throughout Scripture is that if we don't let them into our home, if we don't let them into our life, the place that is more, most sacred to us, then we have no right to share the gospel with them. We have no right to, to let them know we actually love them. I love you, just let's make sure we meet at a public space. Thirdly, look at verse 14. How did Lydia believe the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message? And here what we look at is most everybody understands that if you're addicted to something, if you have an addiction, uh, that part of the addiction is you don't see how bad off you are, huh? You can't see it. You've justified it. You've rationalized it. You've shown yourself why it's needed or or why it's something that's temporary. And here is what is amazing 
is you are incapable of believing in the gospel on your own. Lydia shows us that here. You are incapable of believing the gospel. Keller says this, and I loved it so much I wanted to quote it. There is a paradox, and it's a real paradox, that if you could think of faith as a door, that as you walk up to the door, you know you have things to do, and it's a struggle. You have to make a commitment. It's your choice. You have to repent. You have to believe. And over the door, there's a verse, and that verse is this. It says, whosoever will, whosoever you are, If you exercise your will, if you make your choice, you can enter the kingdom of God. So you do it. It's hard. It's work. It's struggle. It's difficult. You go through the door and you believe and you repent in the name of Jesus. You close the door. You turn around and look up and there's another verse and it says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. No, wait a minute. (laughs) I just worked so hard to choose you, God. God's like, yeah. And you had that ability because I sustained it and upheld it within you. You see, if you right now are sitting in here this morning saying, I have to find God, I must find him, I want to tell you something, he's not far from you. That if you already feel a struggle to know God and you're thinking, I don't know where he is, I haven't felt close to him, I don't know what he wants for me, I'm telling you he's already at your side. Because those that God is far from are those who have no concern or care as to where he is. You won't need to Google him. You won't need to look up and search him. You won't need to read books on where he is so you can find him and then make a journey to a tall mountain somewhere. If your heart truly is longing to know God and to seek him and to have him closer to you, then you are closer than you already think. So you can relax. He's there with you. And lastly, and we'll close with this, the main point of this entire chapter is it doesn't matter who you are, you need Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're the wealthy businesswoman or man or you're the demon-possessed, drug-addicted, mentally ill girl. Every single one of us need Jesus. And the gospel comes to each of us wherever you're at, however you walked in here today, And it comes in a way that God presents himself to you so that you can understand. You don't have to learn theology. You don't have to go get a degree to understand the depth of God's love for you. They clothed Jesus in purple when they were killing him and when they were mocking him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And as they had him clothed in purple, they said, You're a king, aren't you? So you should be dressed like a king. In his sacrifice, in his service, he humbled himself. And in the moment, he was most visibly ugly to mankind. Isaiah 52, 53 predicted this. No one invite the ushers forward as I read this. We were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form beyond that of any human likeness that he had no beauty or majesty to attract. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him like one who men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. At that moment, it was probably difficult to look at him. I feel like the closest 
artist or mankind has ever done, you can begin to pass out the elements. If you have a faith in Christ, we ask you take the cup and hang on to it. If you don't, would you just let it pass? And if it's something you'd like to talk more about, we have people in the prayer room and we'd love to make the introduction with you. But I feel like the closest thing is the movie, The Passion of the Christ. They got us closest to understanding it. But even in that movie, Christ was not disfigured, or Jim Caviezel was not disfigured. He was bloody, but there was still a nobility about him. And for the sake of the graphicness of the picture, I won't show it this morning. But there is no nobility about the disfiguration of Christ on the cross. He had been beaten, his face was swollen, the thorns were crushed into his head. And yet in that moment, as Lydia was hearing about this story, as she began to hear about the one who would give his life, what she was attracted to was the beauty of a man who would lay down his life for his friend. And then on a greater scale, was the glory of a king who would set aside his glory so that you and I might have hope. That's the gospel. That's the gospel to a hurting and broken world. That's the gospel to you and I this morning who have our own struggles and fears and fatigue, who are struggling mentally or physically with whatever life's bringing at you right now. There's nothing more glorious than a king who would give up his glory for you. And that's why we celebrate communion every week. To be reminded that no matter what this week brought, no matter how hard I fell, how much I messed up, how much I disliked myself, how much I was ashamed, that I don't go before God on my merit. I go before God on what Jesus did. If I'd be willing to accept it. And so when Jesus sat with his disciples in that upper room and he broke the bread amongst them and he told them that this was his body broken for them, we take it here today to remember that and to remind ourselves that great beauty often requires great sacrifice. And it's because of his sacrifice that we eat together. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. He then took the cup and he said, this is my blood because a payment still needed to be made. God being both merciful and just could not ignore the penalty for sin and unrighteousness. Jesus said, it'll be my blood. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we bow our hearts and our lives before you. Would the story of Lydia and this poor little girl remind us that if we're willing to see you, if we're willing to reach out to you, you will find us. You'll redeem. You'll give us purpose and restore righteousness. 
Jesus' name we pray.